This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. This is your friend Anirban and you're listening to the second episode of season 2 of History Chatter. In the last episode, I was talking about paperback books. I was talking about the ways in which paperback books changed the very culture of reading in the UK and in the US between the 1940s and 1960s. This week we change moods. This is the week during which we celebrate the 80th anniversary of Quit India movement. Quit India was probably the largest anti-imperialist rising in India in expanse and in diversity. To that extent, it offers a chance to look back to the various forms in which the idea of the Indian nation as it appeared during the Second World War and shortly before independence and partition offers an opportunity for us to look back it will be useful to begin with a general survey of the movement the movement was most intense in north india from ahmedabad in the west to bengal and odisha in the east including up and bihar of today these areas earlier came under the influence of the second world war especially in the form of soldiers returning from the front and uh, bringing stories of difficulty horrible level conditions and economic scarcity there were also centers of earlier powerful nationalist mobilization Sometimes um there were centers of both nationalist mobilization and had soldiers returning from the front. Madras was relatively quiet. Probably because Raja Gopalachari, the most prominent Congress leader in South India, had opposed it. Communists were another notable absence, which probably explains its limited impact in Kerala. The princely states largely stayed out of it. The Punjab and the Northwest too were largely quiet. Other collectives which were hesitant about joining this idea of the Indian nation were Muslims and Dalits. Industrial laborers too were probably somewhat ambivalent about whether or not to cast their lot with this version of the nation yet another striking absence was uh, the lack of anti landlord mobilization perhaps the rising did not have enough time or opportunity to grow into an anti propertyed class movement its main force was thoroughly directed against the british colonial state two messages stand out quite clearly from any study of the quit india movement the first is the almost complete acceptance of gandhi as the tallest leader of the final struggle against the colonial british government the second was the rise to actual leadership of individuals and groups who could not be more different from gandhi in their approach and actions this irony is not explained merely by the fact that all major leaders of the congress had been arrested even before the movement could take off quit india movement may be characterized quite fairly by the statement that it was a popular nationalist uprising which owed its origin and spread to the name of gandhi but which went well beyond the limits of what gandhi had visualized for the movement it manifested uh, the most puzzling paradox of the indian national movement 
Gandhi was the undisputed leader of a movement over which he had very little control. It also explains why the mainstream Congress had displayed a great deal of ambivalence over the movement. Jayaprakash Narayan had wisely observed in 1940, and I quote, if a national struggle as opposed to sectional, factional or partial ones are to be launched, it is suicidal to fight him, unquote. The undisputed faith in the leadership of Gandhi that appeared natural at the time was the result of a recent history. Gandhi had been the undisputed leader of earlier countrywide nationalist risings. In 1919, 1920-22, and 1930-34, he had transformed nationalist mobilization from an elite agitation to a mass movement. He was the one to discover and put into practice the technique of satyagraha or non-violence. The non-cooperation movement was his brainchild alone. The civil disobedience movement had others contributing, but he was once again officially chosen as the supreme leader of the movement. Quit India had been planned as a mass civil disobedience movement. Earlier, in 1941, the Congress had carried out a controlled individual civil disobedience movement. At the time, and again till many years later, 1942 was thought of as the third instance of the great nationalist mass movement. That is how we read it in our school textbooks. It is often seen as uh, the third great wave of the nationalist mobilization, which had uh, started during the 1920s or so. As earlier, the All India Congress Committee had entrusted Gandhi with the charge to decide how to run the movement. When he moved the Quit India Resolution on 8th of August 1942, he had clearly said that the movement were to begin later, possibly in two or three weeks, after he had designed its contours and directed its participants. It means that he clearly asked everyone to wait until he had framed a program. Now, Gandhi also meant the Congress. Over the years, the Congress had emerged as the undisputed party of the nationalist movement. Gandhi had himself converted it into a mass organization since the 1920s. If it had to represent the whole country, he said, it had to first reach into the villages and other remote corners of the country. That it had done during the years between 1919 and 1942. By 1942, there was no hesitation in anyone's mind that it was indeed the most organized, capable and legitimate vehicle of nationalist mobilization in India. Besides, the Congress had already gathered a good deal of experience of sitting in legislature or even of running governments. The moral authority in India had clearly passed from the British colonial government to the Indian National Congress. Apart from the Muslim League and the Hindu Mahasava, most political formations in India appeared to concede national political leadership to the Congress. The communists had briefly walked with the Congress in the past, but during this time, they appeared to take orders from Russia and were working against the Congress and mainstream nationalism. The Communist Party of India actually supported the British war efforts 
and refused to approve any destruction to wartime mobilization. However, many individual members of the Communist Party quite actively took part in the movement in various areas in India. Yet, it would be an overstatement to claim that the organized political parties or movements alone controlled all popular political action in India. Midnapur in Bengal offers an excellent example of how popular initiative often took over and indeed exceeded the limits envisaged or enforced by top-down political parties. There, in Midnapur, local leaders and followers flatly refused to follow the official lines of the All India Kisan Sabha, and they decided to join the movement. At the same time, they had begun the movement well before the Quit India Resolution was passed. By refusing to loan boats to the government war effort and by refusing to provide paddy or rice to the government procurement agents, they would block the roads through which procurement vehicles passed and they would be arrested under the Defense of India rule. All this took place long before the Congress officially launched the movement. As we shall see, here the people had also run a parallel government for two long years. The point is, if on the one hand, the Congress was long held as the most legitimate leader of nationalist mobilization in India, on the other, the autonomous initiative of people at various places could and did often challenge or even exceed this leadership. Yet another striking feature of the political landscape at the time was the clear rise of what may be called other equally legitimate potential nations side by side with the mainstream Indian nation. The Muslim League had been growing in strength as the sole spokesperson for Indian Muslims. Peasants of Khera decided to boycott the Quit India movement. Some influential peasant castes in Bihar decided to support the war efforts of the British government. At the same time, some of these new forces took over the leadership of the local Congress. Young non-Brahmin leaders assumed the leadership in Satara in Maharashtra. They entered the nationalist mainstream without any previous hand-holding by either the Gandhian Congress or by the communists. Non-Brahmin movement and Congress nationalism practically converged in Satara during the Quit India movement. And yet, the parallel government in Satara was run in the name of Gandhi. This taking over of the Congress occurred most visibly in a symbolic sense, meaning uh, the sense in which symbols of traditional association with Congress and Gandhi were appropriated. The most striking example of this appropriation was when people attacked or burned down sites of government authority, such as uh, police stations or railway tracks, while shouting slogans in the name of Gandhi, who swore by total nonviolence. As many have observed, particularly in case of Bihar and Eastern UP, the leadership was that of Gandhi but the spirit was that of Bhagat Singh. Sometimes this spirit even led to public defiance of Gandhi's express wishes. The leaders of the parallel government at Satara refused to surrender, even after Gandhi himself had called for all underground activists to surrender. 
This duality indicates the influence of a previous history. After all, nationalist mobilization in India had a no less glorious history of individual violence and political assassinations. Bhagat Singh stood out as the most outstanding metaphor of that trend. In other places, um, it was Netaji Subhas Bose, for instance. So this tension or duality also explains the somewhat cautious reproach of the official Congress party to the movement later, especially during elections of 1946 and 1952, Congress leaders tried to take credits for the success of the movement, but also made efforts to distance themselves from its excesses. They often requested people, in fact, not to repeat those excesses. A 1945 resolution of the Congress praised the popular militancy, but regretted, and I quote, the fall away from the Congress method of peaceful and nonviolent action, unquote. It also made the popular militancy appear as an inevitable consequence of the absence of major Congress leaders who had all been arrested. It was as though people took to violence only because Congress did not have the chance to control them. This was for many years the conventional understanding of the Quit India movement and probably still remains the school book understanding. As a matter of fact, both Nehru and Gandhi used words and phrases such as wild with rage and maddened with fury to describe popular agency during the Quit India movement. Ironically, soon after Quit India, the position of Gandhi had been weakening in the Congress. He was elevated to a fatherly or advisory position. He would enjoy inviolable moral authority, but relatively less effective authority. The Congress was therefore less concerned that people had become nonviolent, but more anxious that they had gone about without control or order imposed from above. Nehru and Patel were both quite explicit during the late 40s that students or other segments of the Indian society must now leave the task of how to organize political mobilization to the Congress alone. With this general introduction over, let us now move to the more dramatic details. Let us consider three extreme examples, for time is limited. In Midnapur in Bengal, Balia in Uttar Pradesh and Satara in Maharashtra, the local nationalists actually set up parallel government, meaning an independent state. In Midnapur, it was not conceived as a movement but an open rebellion. The objective was quite plain. Drive the British rule out at any cost, right there and then. Gandhi himself had thought of it as an unarmed revolt. This time he was quite open to riots, civil wars, general strike, disruption of communications, stoppage of trains, and even interference with British troop movements. He even conceded that masses were free to take up arms in self-defense. That was also the mood of the Congress mainstream. They were ready for open defiance and called for students to take charge if senior leaders were arrested. 
Quite a large-scale program had been drawn up for the movement, and it was circulated to regional and local Congress offices between 9th and 11th of August. That probably explains the uniformity in popular actions across widely separate places in the country. People typically raided police stations, post offices, and other government buildings, uprooted telegraph wires and railway tracks, and generally all installations central to the war effort. There was an original 12-point program prepared by the Congress. While it had made for a nonviolent movement, a note attached to it did mention that it would involve breaking salt laws, picketing liquor shops, holding up railways and telegraphs, and finally setting up parallel governments. But the leaders had not yet worked out how to actually run or control the movement. They were all arrested between 9th and 11th of August. The initiative obviously passed on to leaders lower down the pecking order. And they tended to pick up the more extreme proposals. As a matter of fact, in most places, the movement declined quite quickly since the government was ruthless with suppression. Yet, while this early phase lasted, civil administration had practically disappeared from large parts of Bengal, Bihar, Uttar Pradesh, Odisha, Madhya Pradesh, and to a lesser extent uh, from Andhra and Kerala. The government was almost totally focused on the war effort. That is why it took a little time to hit back. But once it did hit back and sent the army, it was a matter of days before the movement petered out. There were debates within Congress whether or not to start a movement during the war, which was almost certainly going to upset the war efforts. The Muslim League had openly declared its support for the war effort, but Gandhi was clear. He thought it was a just response to dragging India into the war without consulting Indians. In Bengal and Midnapur in particular, the anger against the government had been growing over the forced requisition of Paddy and evacuation of villages for fear that they might be attacked by the Japanese. Once the government imposed a policy of denial in coastal areas, the situation was even worse. It meant that all means of transport were withdrawn, including boats, for fear that the invading Japanese might use them to move inlands. In reality, it also choked the livelihood of the people there who had lost both their food supply and now their last and the only means of transport. Besides, Midnapur had over the last 20 years emerged as one of the most trident centers of nationalist mobilization. It had seen both nonviolent upsurge police repression, and individual violence. This very record also made it a major target of government repression. Immediately after the beginning of the war in 1939, Defense of India Act was enforced. It meant that political assembly, including meeting or processions, were banned without government permission. War bonds were sold forcefully. Even the poor were made to purchase those bonds. All buses and boats were withdrawn since the Japanese attack. Where boats could not be withdrawn, they were sunk or they were broken. The last harvest had failed. It was a near starvation condition. Local officials tried to argue against forced procurement but the district authorities refused to entertain their request. Local Congress leaders therefore encouraged farmers to refuse and they launched a blockade. 
They also seized the initiative against sinking boats. They would arrange for boats to be safely handed over to their owners. The place had been on the boil well before August 9. The movement was militant enough during August and September. By September, it went all out. By then, the local leaders had resolved to launch a no-holds-barred, remove-the-British campaign. Congress and forward bloc leaders closed ranks and prepared for total war. A war council was formed and a large army was created, including as many as 1,000 members in every block in the district. It was called the Liberation Army or Mukti Bahini. Direct confrontation with government forces began in September. It was full-scale war since then. If mill owners supplied to the government, they would be raided and made to pay a fine. If police arrested activists, large armies would appear at the police station and release the prisoners by force. The police, outnumbered and terrified, had lost its authority. As a matter of fact, the entire region had passed into the hands of local congressmen. They ran parallel courts, maintained a parallel army, and collected finance from local businessmen at will. The government sent in military reinforcements, but could not recover the lost areas. Meanwhile, there was widespread devastation in the region by a cyclone and later a famine. While the government hushed up the news and deliberately held back relief. As if by miracle, when the government finally did offer relief, even the poorest in the region refused to collect it out of sheer contempt for the government. The independent government in Tomluk or Tamrulipto Jatiyo Shorkar, as it was called, ran with full sovereignty for two years. It was formally established in December 1942 and surrendered only by September 1944. It did everything that a government does, make budgets, offer relief, run courts, collect taxes, offer protection, and make the area completely free of the British or indeed of government presence as such. In Balia, the movement was understood as non-violent from the very beginning. The local media and posters publicized it as part of the same tradition that produced Mangal Pandey, Chapekar Brothers or Bhagat Singh. Throughout the area, Urban hartals and blockades were followed by uprooting of railway lines and telegraph wires or of government buildings. In North Bihar, virtually no police outpost was spared. Europeans were humiliated and even murdered by crowds. Balia was a largely Hindu district. Arya Samaj was a major vehicle of nationalism there. The same local zamindar who led the Congress in Balia was also the most strongest patron of Arya Samaj there. The most renowned Congress leader of Balia, Chittu Pandey, was also a major leader of cow vigilante formations. Even the famous revolutionary terrorists from Balia had started out as Arya Samaj activists. During the 1930s, many students from that area went to Banaras Hindu University. BHU had been a major center of revolutionary terrorist movement at the time. The peasant organizations in Balia agitated only against absentee landlords, but rarely against local zamindars. 
the Congress Kwami Seva Dal or Volunteer Army emerged as a very strong uh, congregation of local young men. It will be interesting to look at um, a particular incident in Balia in order to understand the changed nature or the unique nature of political leadership here. Typical of the events that took place at the time in Eastern UP or Bihar um, was the attack on the railway station at Bilthara Road in the northwest of Balia. On 14th of August 1942, the railway station was attacked and looted by a crowd of four to 5,000 people. It was led by um, a 21-year-old student called Parasnath Mishra. Now, Misra uh, went to Benares Hindu University. He left uh, the university in uh, August, on the 12th of August, actually, with his friend Sitaram Rai. Rai belonged to Ghazipur. They traveled by train from Banaras to Saidpur in Ghazipur. They had made a plan um, in a meeting at the BHU campus that students would return to their villages and spread rebellion. From Saidpur, they started working. On the way, they held quick meetings in several villages where people had gathered to hear from them what was happening in Banaras. So they told these meetings that Banaras was burning, that the British Raj was collapsing, and it was the duty of the people to loot and burn all symbols of the Raj. And I quote, we ended our meetings with slogans like Thana Jalado, burn the police stations, station folk though, set fire to railway station, and Angres Vagehe, the English have fled, and so on. Unquote. Parasnath and Sitaram parted company after a few meetings. They went to their own villages. Parasnath Misra arrived in his home village in the afternoon of 13th August. His friends in the locality were quite charged up by stories of what happened in Banaras and they decided to organize something similar at their village. They went to a local um, fair which had been happening in another village and they set up an impromptu meeting. They called upon the people there to assemble at Bilthara Road Railway Station on the next morning. By another coincidence, something um, exciting happened that very day, rather the next morning at Bilthara Road Railway Station. A train was hijacked by students of Allahabad University and they were flying Congress flags arriving at the station. They were going to Gorakhpur and stopping at every major station to deliver lectures. They said once again that the British Raj had been collapsing and they urged people to take strong actions. They told the crowd at the station that the program of the Congress was to paralyze the government. And it was therefore the duty of the people to burn stations, post offices, and other government outposts. This excited the crowds greatly. And by the time Parasnath Misra arrived at the railway station, the crowd had already begun destroying the station building. So there was a, another train, a supply train, which arrived even as uh, the crowd had been busy destroying the railway station. The crowds broke open the wagons and started to loot the sugar. 
the train had been carrying sugar for the army. Uh, the loot continued throughout the day, and as the news spread, people from faraway villages arrived in bullock carts to take away as much sugar as they possibly could. Before the crowds could be led to further acts of destruction, there was news that an army had been coming to take charge. On receiving the news that uh, an army had been sent, all leaders of the incident at Bilthara Road, including Parasnath Misra, immediately took flight. They simply disappeared. The Bilthara Road incident helps to throw some light on the nature of the leadership and the patterns of mass mobilization in the countryside during the 1942 movement. Parasnath Misra had no local standing as a Congress leader. He was only 21. His father was a respected figure. He was a school teacher and owned a fair bit of land. He was also a member of the Congress, though not a prominent leader. So Parasnath Misra's uh, image primarily was that he had gone to the university and he had brought fresh news of unrest from Banaras. Let us now move to the story of what happened in Satara. In Satara, caste and class had converged. As um, we mentioned earlier, there was here the takeover of the movement by a predominantly non-Brahman leadership. As a matter of fact, uh, essentially, the non-Brahman movement was anti-nationalist in the beginning. But it was inevitable that the Bahujan Samaj should become nationalist as they recognized the nature of their colonial enemy. This uh, shift to a nationalist position began in the 1920s when uh, young and militant leaders such as Jedhe or Jawalkar began to express sympathy with the nationalist agitation and organized opposition to the elite or pro-British non-Brahmin leaders. In the 1930s, it was these new leaders who provided leadership and inspired the masses of the Maharashtrian peasantry. Changes in the Congress movement itself helped this process. The fact that uh, a new leadership was coming forward and new programs of importance to workers and peasants were being taken up. Gandhi himself became an important symbol because uh, in Maharashtra, he and his followers represented a new and social reform-oriented group which was in opposition to the old orthodox section, which uh, looked up to Lokmanya Tilak. The younger socialist-oriented Brahmin congressman could also appeal to non-Brahmin leaders like Jedhe. But um, it was Nana Patil who uh, was really the decisive creator of peasant nationalism in Satara. And his main area of operation was not the hills, but the Krishna Valley and the eastern region. Now, Patil was um, a young man of middle peasant background from Valva Taluka. He had gone to school up to the sixth standard. He had been employed as a Talati, but had spent most of his time campaigning for social reform under the influence of Satyashodhak movement. He wandered through the villages, holding meetings everywhere without regard for British political power. And he put forward an ideology of peasant nationalism. The misery of peasants, he argued, including their submission 
to Sahukars and Bhatjis was due to the exploitation by imperialism, which took their agricultural products at low prices as raw material and sent back English manufactured goods to drive out Indian products. The linchpin of exploitation was thus the British rule. Significantly, he also made um, frequent references to Jyotiba Phule, but in a very unique manner. He would say, for example, um, that Jyotiba Phule would appear before a ceremonial British gathering dressed only in a loincloth to symbolize the poverty of peasants under the British Raj. Nana Patil was thus uh, putting forward a combination of the Satyashodak movement and national tradition of the Gandhian variety. And he was taking this to the rural areas for the first time in Maharashtra. Thus, the Satara Bahujan Samaj was becoming nationalist in a peculiar way. They were taking the name of Gandhi as a symbol, but they were not becoming Gandhians in any ideological sense. The connection with the Congress party was not very strong, nor was there any strong or powerful association with the left parties. Satara was developing its unique character. The Maratha wave or the peasant wave that now came into the national movement came with few uh, previous affiliations to give it a clear idea of uh, top-down leadership. The Prati Sarkar was founded in September, August September 1942, and I'll quickly take you through the major activities of the Prati Sarkar in a very schematic manner. So on 9th August, the colonial state uh, swooped down on major leaders of the movement. Now, the arrest of the major leaders only helped to unleash the biggest mass uprising in India. The marches, attacks, sabotage, and sporadic underground activity that followed has been called a spontaneous revolution. But it was also a revolution that, with all its violence, was in many ways initiated by Gandhi, if not directly led by him. The arrests removed any possible leadership for such a mass campaign. But what the masses did remember were basically two points, karenge ya marenge, and let everyone be his own leader. And these were sufficient. The result was that the Satara underground activists not only acted in the name of Gandhi, but continued to claim up to the present that they were in fact following Gandhi's path as they cut wire, robbed trains, snatched rifles, engaged in gun battles with police and decoys, beat those judged guilty in people's courts, and refused in 1944 to follow Gandhi's own expressed wish that they surrender. After the arrests of the top Congress leaders, the remaining Satara delegates uh, met in Bombay. They decided to form two organizations, an underground group and an open Satyagraha group. But this organization at the beginning does not appear to be the organization that created the Prati Sarkar. The first wave of activities, marches to the Taluka and other government centers, were not really Satyagrahas. They were not basically nonviolent efforts to put moral pressure on the enemy. 
the goal was to capture the centers of British power. People came armed with spears, axes, and other homemade weapons and moved on government offices with some kind of idea that they could, with their own hands, put an end to the colonial power. So violence had been endemic. And this violent program in turn led to a new crisis. And the response to this new crisis proved the turning point of the movement. The government came down with a heavy hand. Collective fines were levied against villages. And arrests left 2,000 people of Satara in jail by the end of 1942. It became clear that the English power remained strong. There came the turning point. People understood that the solution to this was that the state power had to be cut off at the village level itself by striking at the local agents who actually carried out the real activities of authority. According to a leader, I quote, when we turned around and instead of running away, began to use weapons against those who were coming after us, that was the real beginning of the Prati Sarkar. A new type of freedom movement started, unquote. What happened was that the underground activists began to physically punish police informers. Activists of the Shirala group, for instance, were the first to do this. On 25th November, in a meeting at Shitur, they set up what they called their state machinery, a very primary division of labor with people allotted to police and revenue departments. And in November and December, two acts of police administration were taken with simultaneous but public courts held by activists to punish informants. The method that was used here came into to being all over, and it was called Patra Lavana. Patra means horse shoe, and the term was used for shoeing a horse. But what was actually done was to tie up the offender and beat him thoroughly on the legs until he would be unable to walk for at least some days. From this, the Satara Prati Sarkar came to be known widely as Patri Sarkar. And at the time, at least, the activists did not mind the implications of violence. They said that we wanted to strike terror into the mind of informers. Now, one can go on uh, with more details, but the basic point that I wish to make uh, is the following. The Indian nation that um, appeared during the Quit India movement was many nations at the same time. It had already been imagined as part of uh, a movement to be led by leadership based in urban metropolitan centers and by the Indian National Congress, and certainly by Gandhi, its tallest leader. In reality, however, the struggle against the British government was taken over exclusively by small-time local leaders and uh, the villagers themselves. What came into foreground were their local grievances, their local socio-economic problems, and their expression of anger against their local antagonists, which, of course, they interpreted as the places and the means through which the British government managed to run its authority in the countryside. Violence, of course, had been a constitutive feature of the Quit India movement. But since this violence was spontaneous, local, 
based on rumors and not consistently planned or carried out under the leadership of an organized army of volunteers, the first phase of the movement um, was suppressed quite effectively. It was the second phase of the movement when this local leadership managed to organize itself into a counter government and took up arms and managed to put in place a rudimentary version of local government, there was a different and uh, more terrifying character altogether on display. In Midnapur, in Balia and in Satara, this local leadership actually managed to overthrow not just the British colonial government, but also the leadership of the Indian National Congress, including the supreme leadership of Mahatma Gandhi. The insight that Quit India offers 80 years later is that India as a country is not and never going to be part of the same nation because the nation is imagined from top down by central leadership or by the nation state as it is run by a government. At the level of the village, of the small town, people are motivated much more by local leadership, local complaints and local initiatives. Quit India movement in a strange but powerful way made India and Bharat come together. But it also showed that India and Bharat were not similar or the same entity. Perhaps today more than ever, it is important to initiate a dialogue, an active and circular and invested dialogue between India and Bharat. The country runs in the name of India, but it governs itself under the initiative of Bharat. Someday, India and Bharat will have to converge. We don't know quite when it will take place. Perhaps that will be the day when the lessons from Quit India will have been learnt quite completely. That brings an end to this episode on Quit India Movement in History Chatter. This is your host, Anirban, signing off. Do remember to tell us what you think about this episode and the episodes which went before and will be coming later. Do please remember to subscribe to History Chatter on Epilog Media website and wherever you get your podcast from. This is Anirban signing off and looking forward to meeting you as early as you let me. Possibly next week. Bye-bye.